Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. This season of preparing for Christmas, which is called Advent, meaning the coming of our Lord, we're examining some characters around the cradle, which is to say important figures in and around the life of the baby Lord Jesus as he came into the world and was born amongst us. Last Sunday we looked at the important character of Caesar Augustus, recognizing how wisely and providentially Almighty God had arranged the circumstances even with a pagan emperor so that the Messiah would be brought into the world. This morning's character on the cradle is the exact opposite, not a man, but a woman, and not a powerful and mighty monarch, but a humble, poor teenage girl. And her name is Mary, Mariam. And because Elizabeth, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that from this point forward, all generations will call her blessed, we refer to her as the Blessed Virgin. Let us give our attention to the Annunciation of Gabriel to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is God's eternal word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reading of Scripture. It is good for us to hear the Bible read to us. It is good for us to hear from you in the Word. And now, Lord, having read the Scriptures, our prayer is that the preacher will explain it, will illuminate it and apply it, and that you will help him and all of us to benefit. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations in each one of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Even though Mary plays such a central role as a character around the cradle, I'm not sure people today, in today's world, really care to hear what Mary, what the Bible says about Mary's role in the Christmas story. What do you think? How do you think Mary would fare with a biblical investigation in South Jersey today? Do you think that the life of a remarkable, though otherwise unknown, godly young girl, hearing about such a life is something that girls and boys want to hear about today? Do you think the life of a righteous woman in a righteous family is something that families in general in South Jersey want to know about today? Today, in a day and an age when girls and boys, but the focus here is girls, are being taught and are believing the lie that God's plan for godliness, righteousness, and holiness is questionable at best, if not mocked and dismissed? Do you think that this life of Mary and her place in Jesus' life, the Messiah, her role, as explained in the Bible, is welcomed in a community like ours, where so many people have been taught that Mary is practically equal with God and indispensable to our salvation, as it is taught in the Roman Catholic Church? Do you think that a true biblical portrait of Mary a Jewish teenage girl who is chosen by God's mere grace alone to participate in the story of the redemption of the world will be welcomed as someone who would pray ten Hail Marys for one or two Our Fathers. So we have two problems, whether it's an excess of worldliness on the one hand, and that is a problem in our community, or a naive acceptance of church traditions on the other hand, we truly need to hear what the Bible has to say about the Blessed Virgin, who is the character around the cradle that we'll study this morning. And in studying Mary this morning, I want to focus on the theme of honor, how God honors Mary, first of all, and then second of all, how Mary honors God. First, let's take a look at how God honors Mary as a character around the cradle. She is a character around the cradle because of God. It's not for anything in her, but it's because of God. We see this right away in the text explicitly when the text mentions in verse 28 that Mary has found favor with God, and that favor consists in the fact that God is with her. So the very first words of Gabriel's greeting coming from the very throne room of Almighty God, the chief angel, the message from God is, you are blessed because God is with you. Mary's blessing consisted solely in this, that God chose her, that God favored her, that God honored her, and that God was with her. And that is true in life, as it is with her, it is true of all of us, that our chief blessing consists in this, that God chose me that God loves me, that God knows you, that God is with you, that God has blessed you. The text does not tell us that Mary was favorable and therefore God chose her. It says that because God chose her, she was favored. Don't miss the order. 
the emphasis on the very first encounter by God with Mary through the angel Gabriel emphasizes the all-important Christian word, grace. God was gracious to her. In fact, the word favor and the word grace come from the same Greek word. The idea is this, God showed grace to an otherwise undeserving sinner. That's Mary. We see this even in the grammar of the passage. It says, you are favored. It's passive. A passive verb doesn't mean means that you haven't done anything. In fact, we could translate it as, you have been favored. So it's extra passive. God saw an otherwise helpless sinner and wrapped his arms around her, embraced her with his promise, included her in his plan, and that makes her blessed. God has honored Mary. It shows up again in verse 30 of our passage. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It isn't that the truth. When we're afraid, the one thing that drives out fear is knowing that God loves us that you're loved by God more than you can possibly know, that he's chosen you, that he's claimed you, that he's owned you, that he's, he's entered into your life, that he's blessed you, he's with you. And that's the source of our privilege and blessing. Mary is graced by God. You too are blessed and graced by God. You are, like Mary, one who apart from God's choice are not favored, but because of God's choice you are graced or favored. Now, Mary has a special role to play, an unrepeatable role to play in bearing the Son of God as the Messiah and Savior of the world. That's not a role that you and I will ever play. It will never be done again. But the principle is the same. Mary is honored by God explicitly. We see that in our text. But there's other ways we can see in the passage that Mary is being honored by God. I'm thinking of this as not just explicit honor, but implicitly God is showing honor to Mary. Take a look at verses 31 to 33. Behold, Gabriel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That's a Greek version of the Old Testament name Joshua, which means God saves. He, Jesus, will be great and be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God. God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end commentator Tim Houston observes this quote every Jewish woman would have hoped she would have the privilege of being the mother of the Messiah but in the case of Mary it was actually happening She would bring forth the promised son of David who would reign over Israel, but not like all the other kings in the line of David. This king would be different. He would rule over Israel by redeeming Israel, not by loosening the oppression of Rome, but by shedding his precious blood on the cross and dying for Israel's sins and ending their exile once and for all. This would be a fulfillment of all the prophecies that the prophets had made to God's people. 
This was the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of when he says, I will write my law on your heart. This isn't that the New Testament is an inward religion where the Old Testament is an outward religion. Ah, it's a matter of the heart now. Read Deuteronomy and count up how many times God mentions the heart. A relationship with God, a covenant with God has always been a matter of the heart. No, what's new about the new covenant is God writes it on your heart. He sovereignly inscribes it. He takes his pen and etches his promises in your heart such that they can never be taken away. And this is the kind of king that this son of David came to be. This is an implicit honor to Mary, to be a part of that, to have a role to play, even a tiny role, let alone being the mother of God. What an honor. What a blessing. Another aspect of honor is not just an explicit honor and an implicit honor, but there's a supernatural honor here as well. And this comes to the topic of the virgin birth itself. As I said, every Jewish woman in the first century would have hoped for the privilege of bearing the Messiah into the world, but none would have ever imagined that it would come in such a manner outside the normal channels of human family life. Certainly no one would have thought that it would involve the social disgrace of being pregnant out of wedlock, which is what happened to Mary. This is why she asks in verse 34 of our text, how can this be since I am a virgin? The answer given to her is that it will come about supernaturally. Notice what the text says. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 35. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And as if to prove the point, she mentions something that Mary wouldn't have known yet. Her cousin Elizabeth, who was barren, was about to give birth herself to a child. She was six months along. And he ends with these beautiful words, which should be written on all of our hearts and minds. Nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't that a great promise? Nothing's impossible. Now, some of you may be familiar. You may know someone. Maybe you yourself even had an impossible pregnancy. A miracle child. Maybe you were told that you could never conceive. Maybe you conceived and your baby almost died. So we can relate to a supernatural experience in birth, but nothing quite could prepare us for this. No father. And this isn't parthenogenesis. This isn't like a spontaneous fertilization of the embryo. I used to teach biology. There's no sperm at all involved in this fertilization. It's the power of God that takes an unfertilized egg from Mary, and we're not exactly told how it happens, except that by God's power, out of Mary's substance, a human child is born, is conceived and is born. Two things are worth noting about how Gabriel describes the miracle of the virgin birth. As I said, it's done, first of all, without a human male. Normally, it's the fusion of an egg and sperm that creates 
fertilization and conception and a human person comes into being. But in this case, no new person is conceived because the person already exists. It's God, the eternal Son, the second person of the triune majesty. It's a pre-existent person. What's new is not the person of Jesus, but his humanity. So the person of God the Son takes from Mary's humanity a human nature, adding to the divine person, making the God-man, Jesus Christ. Second, this miracle not only takes place without a human father, the human nature which is taken from Mary is without sin. Romans 8.4 says that he is made in the likeness of sinful flesh. What this means is he is fully and truly human in every way except without sin. That's right. Mary is not without sin. So it took a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit for this child to be called holy, having derived a human nature from his mother. The absence of the father's participation in the virgin birth is indicative of the new race of humanity being formed, Adam having plunged all of mankind into sin and misery. But the presence of a mother, a sinful mother, would be enough to torpedo the whole project if the Holy Spirit had not overshadowed Mary in this supernatural conception, sovereignly extracting her human nature in some way without sin. The Bible makes it clear that Mary was not exempt from the long line of sinners descending from Adam and Eve. She was, like every other human being, born under the curse of the law. No son born to her could be holy without the supernatural, sovereign, superintending work of the Holy Spirit. There's also a fourth way that she's honored. She's honored... I'm saying naturally, not just supernaturally. I know this is a miraculous birth. I've tried to make that clear. But it took nine months. Other than the supernatural conception, everything about this birth was normal. She was a normal mom. Nine months, she, she probably had trouble sleeping. She was uncomfortable. She was in pain. She was frustrated. She experienced difficulties carrying the child and difficulties delivering the child. Now, I know the Bible doesn't go into detail about these things, but I know this is true by good inference and necessary inference because Jesus is a normal human being and Mary was too. That means that Mary cried out in labor. She agonized in bringing the child into the world. And... Contrary to the Christmas carol, Jesus probably cried too. God used the natural process of childbirth to bring his son into the world. And why did he do this? I think it was part of what the scriptures say was his humiliation. Now we use the word humiliation in our day-to-day -day speech as something extremely negative. If someone humiliates you, they embarrass you and they're, they're sinning against you. But the Bible's use of the word humiliation is a little different. In humiliating himself, or in humbling himself is a better way to look. That, If you want to research this, read Philippians chapter 2. 
What Jesus is doing is he's leaving the glories of heaven in the uncreated, transcendent majesty of the throne room of God. And he's entering time. He's coming to us, as we sang earlier in our service. And he's clothing himself or being found as a man. He's setting aside all of his power and all of his privileges as deity. And in his humiliation, he is born as a human. That's what we mean by humbling or humiliation. He experiences, our catechism says, all the miseries of this life. And that starts with his first breath as he emerges from Mary's womb. As beautiful as childbirth is, it is difficult and it is painful. And it is difficult and it is painful because of the curse of of sin. And yet in God's mercy, he's continued to allow women to bring forth children into the world because he loves us and children are a gift from God, but it is hard. And I believe it is an honor to Mary that he used her body, her natural body, to bring forth his son into the world. This noble and unrepeatable role was to come about by nine months of ordinary labor from a teenage girl. God honors Mary. But my second point is that Mary honors God. Not only does God honor Mary by including her in in his story of redemption, but Mary has honored God by lovingly, obediently, reverently, humbly, joyfully participating, embracing her role in God's story. In doing this, she is a picture of what godly womanhood and holy motherhood should look like for all time. Now, if we were to read the whole section in Luke, starting with the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke 1, verse 5, we'll find a contrasting picture of a, of a hesitating, disobedient, unbelieving, doubting, skeptical man of God named Zechariah. And we have to read Scripture this way, you see. We need to see Scripture in its context and not just pick one verse or the other. And the story of the entrance of, of Gabriel and in his announcement to Mary is in contrast to the announcement of Gabriel to Zechariah, the husband Elizabeth, who would give birth to John the Baptist. So how does Mary honor God then? Mary honors God, I'm seeing, in two principal ways, incidentally and then worshipfully. The incidental ways are, are just sort of in, in the background of the story that we need to pick up. She honors God by coming from a family that taught her the Bible. Where is that in the text, Pastor? Well, if you read Mary's song, which when she greets Elizabeth, when Elizabeth greets her, and tells her that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, Mary spontaneously bursts out into, you've probably heard of it, the Magnificat. In fact, if you have uh, Pandora or Spotify, just type in the Magnificat and listen. Set to music, perhaps the greatest poem in the entire Bible. And you know, every single line of the Magnificat is either a quotation from Scripture or an allusion to Scripture. Mary is brimming with God's Word. 
She knows the scriptures. This wasn't an accident because I believe she came from, she had to have come from a family that helped her honor God's word by learning it in this way. Uh, a, a scholar did a survey. Mary explicitly quotes the following books of the Bible, the Psalms, Samuel, Isaiah, Micah, and Exodus. Now, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot, but I'd like to know a 14-year-old girl this morning who could do that spontaneously. I don't think so. I couldn't do that. So biblical is Mary's poem, the Magnificat, that scholars think she couldn't have possibly said it. I love that. They apparently forgot the verse where they said, nothing is impossible with God. Such a viewpoint not only denies the power of God to inspire the scriptures, which it does, but it downplays the way that Mary and her parents and her rabbis honor God by situating her life in her heart saturating them with the scriptures. I also want to mention just briefly that she must have been part of a Jewish community or a neighborhood or a, um, you know, the, the, the Jews in the first century had various viewpoints on things and her, Mary's tradition had to have been a tradition that was waiting for and expecting and longing for the Messiah. Not all Jewish traditions did, then or now. But Mary's denomination, if you will, her tribe, not the Jewish tribe, but her kind of people, were longing for and waiting for the Messiah. That's why she said, what, Messiah? I didn't think there was a Messiah that was going to come. She was like, oh, Messiah, yes. How can that be? Because I'm a virgin. Mary was looking forward to the Messiah, as were all the other characters around the cradle that we'll be looking at this Christmas. She also honors God because she was from a family, and I believe she herself highly prized the institution of marriage. She was prepared to marry. She was betrothed, even. Betrothal in the first century Jewish society represented something very specific. It was something equivalent to marriage without consummating the marriage at that point. For a 14-year-old girl at this point in her life to embrace and honor the institution of marriage should come as something of a shock to modern ears. She was not, and I know this is anachronistic and we're comparing apples to oranges, and this may get me in trouble, but here I go. She was not looking forward to college, grad school, a career. She was not planning on taking birth control all through her 20s while she finished her studies. She was not planning on partying her 20s and finally settling down in her 30s with a family and children. Mary loved marriage, probably like all the other girls her age, to be true, to be honest. And she loved the institution of marriage, motherhood, and Sexual purity, which leads to that in a godly circumstance or situation. Now, I know in a modern age, every girl needs to think carefully about what her educational options should be. 
and I'm a fan of girls going to college and getting graduate degrees and all of that. But what troubles me is that we're so out of touch with the ordinary rhythm of godly preparation for marriage in modern society. And this is a frustration for young men as well. Because for every Joseph today, there seem to be fewer and fewer Marys. Righteous men who are looking for women who are excited about and preparing themselves for marriage, they seem to be in rarer and rarer supply. There we go. Another way that Mary is honoring God is that she honors the Ten Commandments, and I referenced this a moment ago, but I want to be specific. Specifically, she honored the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. She was a sexually pure young woman. This commitment probably came from having a godly mother and father who taught her. They probably did it in a way that was gracious, humble, and kind, not legalistic and rude. No doubt she also lived in a community that prized virginity before marriage. Clearly, Joseph was this kind of man because when he discovered that she had been impure, at least to his mind, he determined to put her away, but in a way that was, enabled her to preserve her dignity in divorce. I also want to emphasize, even though Mary knew that sex relationships were beautiful only within the context of marriage, you'd be crazy to think she didn't have temptations. She's a teenager. And though clothing styles were different, though cultural mores and traditions were different in those days, the human drive for and love for sex remains the same. She had temptations that she resisted. And the only way she resisted them was through the care of her parents, her church community, her, her synagogue community, and by God's grace alone. And look at how she worships him with her words in verse 28 of our text. He came to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Isn't this honoring to God? She recognizes she's in the presence of God, and so there's fear. There's reverence, and maybe a little just to being flat-out afraid. But she's also processing what's happening to her. She's a, she's a thinker. Mary is a, a woman of, of insight and reflection. She's pondering what kind of greeting, discerning, considering what kind of greeting this might be. That honors God. When God speaks to you, when, God, when you have an encounter with God, it, it's, it honors God for you to, to not let that moment pass, but to grab a hold of it and to embrace it, even though it's terrifying, to look at straight, look at straight in, the, in the face and say, this is a moment, I, I can't let this moment pass. This is a time for me to wrestle with God. And look at her reverent question in verse 34. She honors God. How can this be since I am a virgin? It's interesting, the phrasing of the question in verse 34 is almost the same as Zechariah's question. But the attitude makes all the difference, doesn't it? Mary's question is reverent, recognizing that this would require a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
yet she's also willing and faithful in believing that this is fully possible. And then in 38, my favorite phrase from Mary, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. These, these words ought to be the conclusion of every person's prayer in this house this morning, man, woman, and child. Let it be to your servant according to your word. What a great way to end an encounter, an honorable way to end an encounter with God. Before I conclude this morning, I want to address specifically an objection which we have as a church to the Roman Catholic teaching about, what, about who Mary is. Roman Catholics teach, the Roman Catholic uh, teaching office teaches, not all Catholics believe this, by the way, but many do, that Mary was immaculately conceived. She was not. That Mary was a perpetual virgin, meaning that she never went on to have other children. That's false. She had at least four other children, according to Matthew 13, verse 34. They teach that Mary was assumed upon her death immediately into heaven. In other words, she didn't die or an ordinary death, but she was taken up. There is no evidence of that in the scriptures. None of these teachings are found in the Bible, which is why we had a Protestant Reformation. It, it says, we protest basing church life and teachings on traditions instead of the scriptures. That's what we stand for as a church. Listen to this testimony of a nun whose eyes were opened to the idolatry of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church. She writes in her pamphlet, on May 13, 1981, a man shot Pope John Paul II. As the ambulance carried him to the hospital, the Pope kept praying, Mary, my mother, Mary, my mother. One year later, the Pope made a pilgrimage to Fatima to thank Our Lady of Fatima for saving his life and to consecrate the entire human race to her. In this pilgrimage, the Pope kisses the feet of a statue of Mary, but he is not alone. The nun continues, millions of pilgrims go to shrines which honor apparitions of Mary. Every year, 15 to 20 million pilgrims go to Guadalupe in Mexico. Five and a half million go to Lourdes in France. Five million go to Czestokowa, Jasna Cora in Poland. And four and a half million go to Fatima in Portugal. Special dates draw huge crowds. On August 15th, half a million pilgrims go to Czestokowa. On October 13th, a million people go to Fatima. On December 12th in 1999, five million people went to Mexico to honor Our Lady of Guadalupe. But Proverbs 14:12 says, there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Our minds can be deceived and so can the minds of bishops and popes. Only the Bible is totally trustworthy. When religious traditions conflict with the plain meaning of Scripture, we need to discard those traditions. We cannot afford to do otherwise because your eternal soul is at stake. I want to end with a couple of applications. First, I've emphasized the importance of sexual purity in my message this morning. I didn't do this to put anyone to shame who has committed sexual sin. We are sinners. That's why we're in church. This is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. This includes sexual sin, and the church needs to do a better job of embracing people and being honest about our brokenness and our sin, including and perhaps especially sexual sin. But we need to take sexual sin seriously 
even though society does not. This includes all aspects of our lives, what we watch on TV, what we look at on the web, what we do with our phones, who we talk to and how we talk to them, how we dress, and how we carry ourselves in our relationships. So I want to challenge you this morning to sexual purity. Part of the way Mary was useful to God and part of how she honored God was that by God's grace she was sexually pure. She was a virgin. And I believe usefulness to God, not just in bearing the Messiah, but in every aspect of our lives, requires us to be committed to this discipline. But I also want to encourage you, if you have sinned sexually, here's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.21. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. If you have fallen or disgraced yourself or you're ashamed of your behavior, you may be cleansed of these things. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ for me and for you. You are not useless. You are useful to God. And while you cannot ever recover physical virginity, you can rededicate your life to serving him in newness and in purity, which is what you ought to do. I've also emphasized this morning Mary's need for grace and her humble recognition of her status as a servant of God. She didn't come to God as somebody that was important to him. She came to God as somebody that he has said was important to me. Nevertheless, faith without works is dead. We need to remember that Mary's remarkable humility and obedience are noteworthy. They're worthy of our imitation. Do you recognize in your life what Mary recognized in hers? That God has a plan for you, that you have a part to play in his redemptive purposes. Are you humbly and obediently and joyfully and reverently pondering and considering what his plan is for your life? Are you embracing it as Mary did? Are you asking humble questions and then hearing the answer? Are you giving yourself to full and heartfelt service to the Lord? Will you end your prayer? Let it be done to your handmaiden according to your will. I am the bondservant of the Lord. Or are you actively rebelling against God in your life? Finally, I mentioned Mary's commitment to the scriptures, and I want to leave you with this. This is an observation of a pastor on the importance of God's word. This pastor writes, All of us should be aware that the entire Bible can be read completely through by an average reader, not stopping, in 77 hours. Every disciple of Jesus, he says, ought to, ought to aim to know the Bible like you know your job, whatever your vocation may be. One who works in a factory and operates a machine knows exactly how to push the buttons and what to do next. Truck drivers know just about when to shift the gears as they approach a grade on the highway. Those who sew in a sewing machine know how to thread the machine. Workers have everything at their fingertips and know what needs to be done next. But if we don't know our Bibles as well as we know our jobs, we are living a poor testimony. Mary was saturated with the scriptures, and this is the one that God chose to be the mother of our Savior. You know, Mary probably taught her son the Bible. Think about that. Jesus learned the scriptures that he authored from Mary. What an amazing story. What a blessing. If each of you would become a regular and devoted and careful reader of the Bible, this church would, could not be the same. 
our town, our world could never be the same. I will also venture to guess that if you do not spend at least a little time every day in the Bible, your faith will not remain the same. It has to decline. It must. It will be taken from you like the bird snatching the seed which the sower sowed in Jesus' parable. So Mary, a character around the cradle, one of the most important, was a student of the Scriptures. And so should we be. Let us pray. Father, as we bow in your holy presence, having heard about and been reminded of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her, the way in which you were so gracious to her and exalting her and honoring her who was of low and of no reputation, and yet how she also was faithful and obedient in honoring you. I know I am humbled and we all should be in the presence of, of such a woman as this. For her holiness and her sanctity, her humility, her love for scriptures, her obedience, her joy, her, her thoughtfulness and reflection. What a model for men and women. And we thank you, Lord, for making her such an important character around the cradle. May we neither ignore her nor worship her. But may we recognize in her the grace of God which we ourselves need. For we're praying this now in Jesus' name. listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.